Thank you, Mark. It seems a, a bit strange to me, having been gone from this part of the world for the last 10 years or so, for Mark to be praying for the weather that we're enjoying this week. We do have a word for this kind of weather where I live now. It's called summer. Yeah. <laughs> 50s in the morning, 70s during the day, you open the windows when you get up in the morning and just enjoy the beautiful, cool breeze, the blue skies. Uh, The weather is changing a little bit where I live now, and I noticed that on the way down. Um, Where I live in the mountains, the leaves have gone through their cycle of colors for the fall. They're all on the ground now, and Wednesday morning when I came out, to put the last of my stuff in the car for the trip down, uh, I was scraping ice off the windshield. Uh, in fact, it turned out that the windshield wipers, even though I preheated the car and defrosted the windshield, I think between the time that I had done that and started down the road, the windshield wipers had refrozen to the windshield. I turned the, the washer on to get some stuff off the window. I've never had this happen before, but... Um, the right-hand, what for the driver is the right-hand windshield wiper, uh, the arm actually pulled out of the windshield wiper, and I had to pull over. That was my first unscheduled stop on the way down, pulling over to repair my windshield wiper because <clears throat> it was still stuck to the windshield. So, yes, the weather's changing a little bit, but this feels wonderful to me. I don't know why you're talking about wearing jackets. This is the kind of weather where I, I only have two pair of shorts now, by the way, and I only wear them a a few times a year. I did bring a pair just in case it warmed up a bit, but um, it's a little different, and it's been uh, a wonderful experience living in the mountains, even though I do miss my church family. Well, it almost goes without saying that this last year and a half has been a very troubling time for everybody but it's also been a very troubling time for the church. And I'll start with an anecdote. I don't know if any of you know someone named Todd Friel or perhaps uh, have heard of him. Friel, F-R-I-E-L. He's, um, he's kind of a commentator, blogger, podcast kind of guy. Um, he's kind of big and tall and loud and you know, has kind of his own shtick in the way that he does things. But I saw a a video fairly recently, within the last month or so, I guess. It was a composite of some comments that he had made on a recent podcast, juxtaposed with something of a rebuttal from James White of Apologia Church, regarding the question of mandatory you-know-what. He called it the mandatory V. He was trying not to get censored. The mandatory treatment, let's say, for a certain virus. And his argument was basically this. He says, I'm looking at Romans 13, and I'm looking at 1 Peter, and I'm saying, this is pretty cut and dried. There's really not much wiggle room here. That... You know, if we are required to submit to the state, then if the state says that I have to wear a pinwheels to go to Publix, which I assume is a grocery store up where he lives, that then I have to put pinwheels on my head in order to go shopping. I'm thinking, this just doesn't sound quite right. And frankly, if that's the case, and this is kind of how we'll start this discussion, is that if it's the case that the state can order you to do anything, and there is a form of absolute submission that requires you to obey the state no matter what they tell you to do, whether it's absurd or whether it's a violation of your own conscience, then that's really assigning a kind of absolute authority to the state and requiring a form of absolute submission by the individual. And frankly, that's authoritarianism or tyranny. The question is whether in requiring us to submit to the authorities, there is that absolute kind of submission. Our authorities, once they are established by God, as Romans 13 would say, are they absolute? Can they tell you to do anything? And 
The answer is no, they can't. And in fact, we'll probably look at a couple of excerpts from the Westminster Confession. There's, there's a very critical word that the Westminster Confession uses in describing authority, uh, submission to authority. And it's the word lawful. Lawful authority. So what constitutes lawful authority? And what are the different authorities? Because there's more than one, and it's also the case, I'm willing to bet, that somewhere over the last year or two, you've heard a teaching or a sermon on Romans 13 or on 1 Peter along the lines of we have to submit to the state. That's true. But the question is, what other kinds of submission are there? Because that's not the only one. And so part of what I think has been missing from the argument is a recognition that God establishes not just the sphere of the state as an authority. We're going to look at four spheres of authority in First Peter. Um, and that those work together as a system. There, there's none of those four that have a form of absolute authority where they can just do whatever they want to do or where they can start to take over those other spheres. And if we're only looking at one sphere of authority, and if it's also the case, this is, I, I was listening to a, a sermon a few weeks ago in the church where I'm attending. Uh, my sister and I are both attending there, and, I, and the pastor was preaching on First Peter on this particular passage. And I said, what was missing from the sermon was the answer to the question, when is it right to resist authority? With only the obvious exception. The obvious exception is what? If the state commands something that God forbids, we refuse. If the state forbids something that God commands, we refuse. But I want you to notice that there is a principle behind both of those two exceptions. And that is the principle that the state has left its proper bounds of authority. And so more generally, the question becomes then, what are the bounds of authority? What are the limits of authority and submission? Now, this is a really big topic, okay? And, you know, we could talk, if you want to use the analogy of painting in broad brushstrokes, well, I'm not painting in broad brushstrokes. I've got the roller out today. All I can do is just slop some paint on the wall and hopefully kind of generate some interest here because what I'd really like to do, and I've already told this to the elders, so I'm not giving away anything. What I'd really like to do is come back and do another conference on this topic because there's a great deal more that we need to think about and we need to have biblical discernment at a time like this because without doubt, we're living in a time where the state now operating on a humanistic worldview, the very thing that Schaefer warned us about 50 years ago, half a century, can you believe that? Half a century ago warned us about this, that in a humanistic worldview, when it comes to authority, there are no defined boundaries. If you want to understand in, in quick and easy terms what's happening right now, why does this feel so strange, why does it feel wrong, the answer is because the humanistic state does not acknowledge any boundaries on its authority. It thinks that whatever it has the power to do and has the will to do, that it has the duty or the right to do. It really kind of takes us back to Nietzsche's will to power. Nietzsche said, it doesn't matter what you do, just do something. Just exercise your power. The analogy is like, you're standing on a street corner and here's a little old lady who needs some help across the street. And Nietzsche would say, in this situation, it doesn't matter whether you're the Boy Scout who helps her across the street safely or whether you just push her in front of a bus. You've exercised your will to power. There's no right and wrong in that kind of a system. And we touched on that idea yesterday in the conference, that part of what we're seeing is a utilitarian ethic that is taking hold. This idea that it's a matter of the most good for the most people. And if you think through a utilitarian ethic, you realize that some people end up with a really bad deal in that thing. That's where you end up with genocide, literally. That's what that kind of worldview leads to. And what's frightening to me is when I see 
that kind of utilitarian thinking working its way into the church. And I have seen evidence of that over the years. And this is a case where I might refer back to what we talked about yesterday, the craftiness of the deceiver is in getting you to start to adopt some of these worldly ideas and worldly ways of thinking without even realizing that you're doing it. That's how subtle it is. So we're dealing with some very difficult issues. We're dealing with some issues that are potentially very divisive in terms of where people are going to land. If you think over the last year and a half how we have divided ourselves along the lines of well, we now have a mask section over there, and then we have an unmasked section over here. Well, if I just kind of take that picture out of focus for a moment, that sounds like the segregation that we tried so hard to overcome back in the middle of the last century. We're starting to bring some of that stuff back again. And the idea that there are those who have a certain experimental treatment that have now special privileges in society, and those of us who merely had the thing and didn't have the injection are now a lower class. We don't get into restaurants or shows or sporting events because we don't have the passport that shows we got the jab. This is craziness. And I say this to point out that I realize there's already a lot of division. And this has been part of my struggle personally in looking for a congregation, a faithful congregation to worship in. Because so many congregations, even in the Reformed community, I think, have just kind of gone off the rails over this last year and a half. And maybe not have done things, we could say that giving the benefit of the doubt that there there has been mistakes made in the way that we've approached this. In other cases, I think some churches have just completely gone off the rails on purpose and embraced... Uh, whatever the state now says the church has to do. And that's alarming. That's very alarming. That's why, that's literally why I wrote this little book here to talk about what's going on in relation to church and state. That when the state, if the state says that the speed limit on Denman Avenue is what, 50, I think, or 40? Whatever the speed limit sign says, The state has the authority to establish the speed limit on Dimmon Avenue. And if Mark's going down the road in his little banana beamer at 70 miles an hour and the Lufkin PD pulls him over and says, Sir, do you have an emergency? And he he says, No. And he's thinking, How am I going to explain this to my congregation? So he goes away with a citation for driving his fancy car too fast on the road The civil magistrate has the authority to set the speed limit and to impose a fine when we break the speed limit. But what happens if the same police officer comes into this church on a Sunday morning, walks through that door back there and says, okay, Mark, I'm going to tell you what the rules are for worship now. Here's where people have to sit. Here's what they have to wear. We're going to talk about the the importance of safety in regard to your congregation, and we know that singing projects germs, so we're not going to permit any singing. We're not going to allow you to uh, to pass, pick up or pass these things around. Can't use your hymnals anymore because there are germs on this. You can't see them, but there are germs here, and this is dangerous. In fact, you could die by picking up one of these books, so we're not going to let you do that. Uh, that plate that you pass around to collect an offering, no, we're not going to let you do that. That's too dangerous. And then this table of communion that you serve, well, that's off limits too. But I'll tell you what, we don't mind if you just put your church on the internet and tell everybody to stay home. Never mind that you're commanded by Scripture not to forsake the assembly of the saints. In fact, the Greek word for church, ekklesia, refers to the assembly, to the calling out of the church from society and into the public assembly. So at that point, does that officer of the civil magistrate have the authority to start redefining how you do church? And the answer is no. And why is the answer no? Go ahead. Is the civil magistrate 
respect to public safety in the physical church? Yes, and I address that in my theses. You have to meet the building codes, right? And you, you're under property law. How do you have title to this building? There's property law that governs things like ownership. So, yes, but when it comes to the worship of the church, the assembly and the worship of the church, that's where the civil magistrate has crossed the line. Yeah, there, there is the matter of the Constitution, and we do live in a constitutional republic where the officers of the law, the civil magistrates, take an oath to do what? To protect and defend the Constitution. And so even by their own legal standard, by the structure of the United States, they are violating their office. In fact, I would put it in in more theological terms, and say they are violating the covenant that they have with the citizens. There is a covenant called the Constitution that binds citizens and civil magistrates together in a certain relationship. And if we break our terms of the covenant, like speeding down Denman Avenue, then we're held accountable for that. On the other hand, those who are in those positions of authority, we say this is one of the buzzwords, the expressions that you've heard. It's always used in a one-sided way. But nobody is above the law, right? And it's referring to what? It was referring to the last guy who was there. They wanted to say, he's not above the law. He can't just do what he wants to. Well, that's true for everybody. And what's the law? The law is the Constitution. And we're systematically ignoring it and undermining it at many points. Um, and what we're seeing... And, and my response to what you said a minute ago is, ma'am, you don't understand, this is a public health crisis, and we now have the authority to tell you to do what we want you to do. <laughs> and, and, and at this point, the, the church has to say no. And the reason is why. Again, why? Because the state is not the only authority. The church also has authority given to it. And there are two others as well. Now, what I've given you in your notes, like I said, I'm painting with a roller brush and I'm being really sloppy and getting paint everywhere because there's really way too much for us to try to cover in a session like this today. But I do want to establish a few principles for you. I've already kind of whet your appetite, I hope, with just what we've said so far. So again, back to what Todd Friel says, and any other pastor or teacher, I'm not picking on him specifically, but he put himself out there, so I don't mind referring to what he said and saying, there's something that's obviously missing from this argument. Do we submit to the civil magistrate? Well, yes, it's clear as a bell that we have a duty to submit to the civil magistrate, but it's also clear as a bell that the civil magistrate does not have absolute authority. So we're going to talk about a little bit of biblical and political theory as it regards authorities. Now, what I've listed there, mostly on the front and going over onto the back of the page, I I just started putting down a number of references for both Scripture and the Westminster Confession as they talk about different spheres of authority. Um, Let me turn to, um, let's see. I'm trying to remember which chapter in the Westminster Confession I needed to refer to for this. I've already forgotten. Yeah, I have uh, three different chapters there, in the, or two, a couple of different chapters listed in the Westminster Confession, and, and also a section in the Westminster Confession. Uh, Let me, yeah, yeah. And 23, this is, this is like, this is opening another can of worms, right? Because 
chapter 23 of the Civil Magistrate, it was writ, as it was written by the Westminster Divines, was modified by the American Presbyterian Church uh, in 1789. And that's what we have as our doctrinal standard in the PCA and the OPC. Yeah, and and so we take that part out, and it's like, well, if we take that part out of the Westminster Confession, then we might as well throw the Confession away because that's where it came from. The the Parliament called for a synod that produced that document. So it's like, so there's there's some controversy in regard to how the Confession describes that, and I think in the Belgic Confession that's also been changed as well, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, the, the, if you look at those passages, both in the Belgic or the, the Westminster Confession, you need to ask yourself, which version am I reading? Because the original version, I think, is correct. Now, it's very controversial, but I think it's correct to say that the civil magistrate has a duty, biblically, to basically oppose all kinds of idolatry. Well, it's like, whoa, well, we couldn't tolerate that in our American constitutional system. We have to have freedom of religion. But the Bible doesn't guarantee freedom of religion. That's idolatry if you just worship whatever you want to. So at any rate, I say that with some caution because those portions of the historic confessions have been modified somewhat over the years. I think it looks to me like mostly to accommodate American political uh, theory but the if we if we go back to the old testament and particularly the time of the kings what's the big distinction between the good kings and the bad kings the good kings order the external order of the church they tear down the high places they burn the idols they're basically doing just what the original confession said which is to oppose idolatry okay so that could be a separate topic entirely because of how that has changed. But if we go back to the biblical principle, I, I think it's pretty clear. Okay, It becomes controversial. This is the funny thing. It's like when, when we were doing pro-life stuff years ago, I'm thinking, this is we, talk, we say this is controversial. Abortion is controversial. Well, no, it's not. It's murder. Look at the Bible. It's not controversial at all in the Bible. And this is kind of like that, too. This is not a controversial issue if it's the case that the good kings were commended for tearing down the high places and burning the idols and making it possible for those in the priesthood to do their charge properly, then that gives us a picture of, biblically, what the relationship between the church and the state ought to be. Now, you say, well, we can tolerate that in America, but the problem is this. What do we have instead? So now we have, instead of charging the state with protecting Christianity, now the state has adopted the religion of humanism, and here it comes. Here comes the bulldozer. It's destroying everything in its path, and the church is in its path. So the state is going to opt. This is the fallacy the state is going to operate according to some religious principle, some religious commitment. The question is, what is it? Is it true religion or is it a false religion? And the state as it stands today is operating according to a false religion. And that helps explain this dynamic now, why suddenly it seems that the church and the state are in this fairly... Uh, I want to say violent conflict, not violent in the the violent sense of the word, but there's it's it's a clash of two authorities coming together that have opposing worldviews. So that's part of what we're seeing in in the dynamic right now. So let me we have till ten thirty. Is that the plan? Ten twenty five. Okay. Well, what I'm going to do. And we'll leave room for some spontaneity in what we're doing because I certainly couldn't cover even a fraction of what I've got here. This is just kind of like I'm literally throwing paint at the wall with the notes that you have in front of you. 
but it's designed to help give you some some reference points. That's kind of what I have in mind to do today. Let's establish some reference points. We don't have any notes in front of us. Do we? Yep. Do you all have notes? I have read Never mind. Never mind. Ah. So this this gives you a starting point, and I would we're not going to try to cover all of this. Believe me, um, we couldn't do it justice if we tried to do that. But but I do want to at least kind of look at the headings because the headings will help establish some principles, and and then if you like afterwards you can look up some of the verses, and if you have other verses that come to mind, and and I'm already starting to add a few to my own printed notes, um, then 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 please consider that as well and. You know, let me know if you think of other verses that are um, are helpful in each of these areas. So, where does the basic principle of submission to authority come from? Let's go back to the book of Exodus, the law, the Ten Commandments. Chapter 20 and verse 13. That's not right. That should say verse 12. Sorry about that. Verse 12 of chapter 20. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. That's the basis for establishing authority and submission. And it kind of makes sense. Now, there's a general principle behind the fifth commandment. We'll look a little bit at the exposition of the fifth commandment that we find in the Westminster Larger Catechism because that helps show what this really involves. It's more than just children obeying their parents, isn't it? What's the first authority structure that you encounter when you enter into the world? Mom and Dad. Right? They are, and I'll go ahead and add this thought that when we think about the authority structures that God has established, which one is the primary one? Human authority structures. The family, is it not? That's where authority begins, that's where authority is first exercised. And I'll add this statement. That, well, I'll ask the question, just to get you to think about it for a second. Of the institutions that God has established, you have family, you have the civil magistrate, the state, you have the church, and I also add a fourth one, which is, you can call it industry if you want to, or the economic sphere. It's expressed in Scripture as the relationship between masters and slaves. And I count it as a separate sphere of authority simply because the responsibilities and the duties that go along with the master-slave relationship are different from the other three. So, I don't know why the Reformers didn't count four rather than three, but um, I, I count four. And both Peter and Paul describe what I would call that fourth sphere of human authority or that fourth, fourth institution. So those are the four that we'll talk about. Family, church, state, and industry. Which of those four is the most powerful? What is the most powerful institution in society? One with a sword. Is it? That's a sword. Hmm. Any other thoughts? <laughs> so, let me... Do, do you have a sword? There's a sword. Do I have the power of a sword? Nope. No, this is under the institution of God. Do I have a right to defend myself? But if it's mediated, 
not by the state. Yes, it is. It is ruled by God, but it's mediated under the magistrate. If you use that, you'll be subject to law. The question is, can the civil magistrate take this sword away from me? If you use it unlawfully, yeah. That wasn't what I was getting at. <laughs> the question is, do I have a right to self-defense? And this is one way that I can do that. The sword, I mean, obviously you say the civil magistrate has a sword. I've seen lots of cops. I've never seen one with a sword. The sword represents what? It represents the exercise of power and what kind of power? Punishing the evildoer. So, so here's how I want you to think about this. And if you look on the back of your notes down there at the bottom, I put a little triangle on there. I drew it very hastily this morning. I was literally finishing my notes this morning. I was too tired to do it last night. I just I was wiped out after such a long day. Uh, I didn't realize until after I had gone to the bedroom that it was only 8.30 when I said I'm going to bed. <laughs> I did stay up until about 9, but that was as far as I got. And then I thought, oh, I've got plenty of time to finish this in the morning. So that's what I did. That's my artwork. But it conveys this idea that there are three aspects to any authority. We tend to focus maybe, I would say, too much on the authority part. Why is authority given to anyone? And there's a reason why I put something else at the top of that triangle. What's at the top? What is first given? So here's how it asks the question, Trey. Who has more responsibility, you or the state? Really, is the state responsible for feeding your children and training them? Is the state responsible for teaching your wife? No, Joe Biden is responsible for an entire nation. Oh, I see. Well, in the humanistic view... That's what we have, isn't it? The state thinks it's responsible for everything or thinks it can take control of everything. I'm responsible for the common good of the entire nation. I'm responsible for the common good of And whose responsibility is greater in that equation? It depends on how you're measuring it. If it's more people than Joe Biden... I'm not measuring it according to how many people because it was a case, I would say that you, you're saying that Joe Biden is responsible for maintaining order in society, but how responsible is he versus the responsibility of each head of each household in maintaining order in their own family, in their own household? Trey quoted from the preamble of the Constitution, which starts, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union and, and, and uh, provide for the common good Oh, so, so hmm. So what you you're saying that we are a nation who chooses its leaders, and they govern by our consent. And there's something called the Tenth Amendment, if I recall, that says that the states that are not specifically assigned the powers that are not specifically given to the federal government are reserved to the states or to the people. So then that, that raises a whole new question. Who's really the civil magistrate in a constitutional system like ours if the Constitution is designed to reserve most of the power to the people and it's the power that the people delegate to its representatives to govern and not that when someone is placed in a position of government that they assume authority to themselves? That's a different discussion, but it, it adds to the complexity of the argument. But here's, here's how it must be the case. I'll, I'll use this as an illustration. I always go back to the book of Genesis, of course. Genesis chapter 9, Noah gets off the ark. All the rest of the human race has been wiped out. Gone. What do we have? We have Noah. We have his wife. We have his three sons, 
and his three daughters-in-law. That's the whole substance of society at the conclusion of the flood. Here's the family. Now, where do we see the emergence of these other institutions? We go from one family, well, let's say, let's one family, and then Noah's sons begin to have children, so they start to form their own families. So we go from one family to four families, and then the number of families continues to multiply. Society continues to grow. And it's only then you you start to see the separation of the institutions. Because initially, it's just the family. Initially, it was just Adam and Eve. So you have in the family the seed of civilization and the seed of all these other authorities. All other authorities must come from the family, and it's the family where you have the greatest responsibility. The head of the household is responsible for his wife. He is responsible for his children. And he is responsible in a way that no other authority is responsible. Now, where we start kind of blurring the lines is when we pack our kids up and send them off to the government school as if it's the government's job to educate our children. When Ephesians 6, 4 says, speaking to fathers, bring up your children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Who's responsible for educating your children? You are. Who's responsible for feeding them and clothing them? You are. Paul makes a big point as he's instructing the young pastor Timothy about whom to enroll in the care of the church, is he not? And he basically says not everybody who's a widow is a widow. Not everybody who's a widow, that is, is qualified or should expect to receive support from the church because what's the qualifier? There's a qualifier for young widows, and the admonition for the young widow is to what? Get married, manage your household, raise your family. What's the qualification for the elder widows? Bingo. And what does Paul say for those who will not provide for the members of their own household? They have denied the faith and they are worse than the unbeliever. Therefore, if you have a widow that is in your family, you provide the care for the widow. And one of the most poignant things that Christ did on the cross before he died, what did he do? We have John and Mary who are standing there at the foot of the cross. And what does he say? Woman, this is your son. Woman, behold your son. And, and man, behold your mother. Now, that seems like a very peculiar thing. But what is Jesus doing? Jesus is the eldest brother in his family. He's about to die. He is not going to be able to provide care for his mother, mother, who by this time presumably is a widow now that Joseph has died. And so he is placing his mother into the care of John. And what does it say in response to that? From that day, Mary was taken into the household of John and remained there for the rest of her life. So all of that to say, all of this comes back to the family, the centrality of the family. It's not the state's job to take care of your family. It's not the state's job to feed you or clothe you or provide you housing or any of those kinds of silly things that we think the government provide health care. We think the government has a responsibility to do. No, the core of society is the family. And we can see that most clearly at those moments like at the beginning where we have only Adam and Eve or after the flood where we have Noah and his family, all of society is bound up in that. Now, if I go back to Noah, I would say, where was the church? More specifically, how do we know that? He built an offer and made sacrifices after the flood. He was not only the head of his family, but now he's acting as the priest of his family by offering worship to God. And what about industry? There's also a story about industry in there somewhere, I think. 
that after the flood, Noah did what? He planted a vineyard, and he made wine, and he got drunk, and he passed out naked in his tent. And I'm thinking, he must have been pretty good at that. That must have been some good wine. I would say that's the elephant in the room. Now, what I've been describing, I'm putting a label on it. I'm calling it institutional authority, the institution of the family, the institution of the church, the institution of the state, the institution of the workplace. And most of us are in, well, all of those four spheres, or certainly have been. But the elephant in the room is individual authority and liberty of conscience. Is it not? This is October 31st. Why did we say October 31st was an important day? Not because of candy or costumes, but because a fat German beer-drinking monk wrote some Latin text on a piece of parchment and nailed it to the church door in Wittenberg. And four years later, that was, the, that was what we say started or inaugurated the Reformation, October 31st, 1517, but it wasn't until four years later where he's pulled in front of the Imperial Diet of Firms. And here he's standing in front of the combined authorities of the state, Prince Charles plus the delegates from the Pope. And what does he say when he's standing in front of them and they say, is all this your writing? These your books? Yep. Do you recant of what you just wrote? And he said, No. And why did he say no? What was his basic? Yeah, so depending on which of the movies you've watched and which of the biographies you've read, because I guess the accounts are somewhat variable about what he precisely said, but the idea is he said, I cannot and I will not recant. My conscience is held captive to the Word of God. Unless I am persuaded by reason and by Scripture that what I've written is wrong, I cannot recant. And then this is the part that I like. To, to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. And that, that's the answer to the question. This is, this is what I would say is the elephant in the room. It's not just these institutional authorities that God has appointed, but it's also recognizing that there is an individual authority. And I do have that mentioned there. Uh, let's see. Yeah, on the top of the back page. Freedom of conscience and individual responsibility. And, and an illustration of that, 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22 says what? Test everything. Keep what is good, reject what is evil. That's an individual responsibility. If your pastor gets up here on Sunday morning, no matter how well-dressed he may be, and he's always been a snappy dresser, I've always admired that about Mark. (laughs) No matter, if he gets up here and he says something that contradicts Scripture or goes against reason, you have the responsibility to be testing what he's saying. And if it's the case, even though he's speaking from a position of authority and the pulpit, by the way, when he is standing in the pulpit preaching, not just speaking like announcements or different things, but when the preaching takes place, he is speaking the words of God with the authority of Christ. But if he speaks error, what are you to do with that? Are you to say, well, he's the pastor. He said so. No, we still have a duty to test everything. Yes, ma'am. Okay, do you have that reference? On freedom of conscience? Somebody, yes. one person, 
523 of Galatians. Thank you. Starts in 22, the sentence. 22 and 23. Okay, yes, thank you. So 5.22 is, is the main verse. Oh, yes, thank you. So, yes, that's, that's part of what <clears throat> seems to be missing from the discussion is the, the importance of individual freedom of conscience. Um, and along those lines, let's take a look at what the Confession has to say about that in chapter 20. The Westminster Confession is in the back of your Trinity Psalter hymnal and the Trinity hymnal, the red one as well. Um, tell me when you get the page number. 931. 931? Okay, so Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. And I'd like to take a look chiefly at paragraph 2 where it says, God alone is Lord of the conscience and had left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it. There are those exceptions that we were talking about early, if matters of faith or worship. So that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. So there is an aspect in which our our obeying authorities is a matter of conscience, but there also must be a limit to that as well. That to simply engage in blind obedience is not really... it's, It's... an abandonment of the principle of Christian liberty if we do that. And the simple principle behind that is that each and every person is individually held responsible. Right? Now there's something called the Nuremberg defense maybe you've heard of. I hadn't heard about it until just recently. Yeah, it's the idea that the German soldiers tried to defend their evil actions by saying, we were just following orders. And how did that go as a legal defense? It was rejected. Even someone who is under authority, when they're being told to do something that's wrong, they can't simply say, well, I just did what I was told. That would be a betrayal of individual responsibility and individual conscience. And if you're not already seeing signs of this very same thing happening right now, I don't mean to be rude, but you are not paying attention to what's happening. If you don't see what's happening in healthcare, where healthcare workers are being compelled to do things that violate their own conscience in regard to the treatment of patients, this is happening right now. And this is why I would say we have to have discernment as Christians. We have to be prepared, frankly. We have to know where the line is. If you were among those last year who were saying, yeah, yeah, mandatory masks, everybody ought to be required to wear masks, okay, then you're probably among those who say, mandatory vaccines, everybody has to have vaccines. And you're going to be among those who, whenever the next dictate comes along, says, yeah, yeah, I'm all for that too. If the government says we have to cut off everybody's left arm, then I'm all for it. If the government thinks that's the best thing to do, then we have to go along with it because Romans 13. You've got to figure out where the line is. You may have to search your own conscience and search the Word of God and ask for wisdom about that. Because we are entering a time, I think, that's unprecedented in the history of this country. We have become accustomed to a fairly friendly relationship between the church and the state 
or between the state and the citizen. And that dynamic is changing, and it's changing rapidly. I think it's changed permanently already. And it, it frankly bothers me. The church that I'm attending now, I, I was thinking to myself, if I, if I just walked into this church without any context of what had happened over the last couple of years, it would be like, everything's normal. You can't really tell that something drastic has happened, but it has. And so this is a warning, as well as kind of a doctrinal uh, lesson. Uh, let me look at a few, let's look at a few principles, and I think what I've written here in the way of principles and in the way of consequences would be pretty non-controversial. I don't think I'm pushing the boundaries very hard just yet in either the principles or the consequences. But the idea here, and if you want to think, this is one way to describe it, if you think of a four-square box representing those four spheres of authority, church, state, home, and workplace. Got that in your mind? You've got the divisions between those? If you want to draw a picture, draw it in ink. Because those boundaries are established by Scripture. But what does the state come along and do when it operates from a humanistic framework? It's erasing all of those boundaries and saying, no, no, we're going to govern it all. That's the moment that we're living in. Yes, ma'am. Yes, thank you. That's that's a good way to express what I was saying. It, and it and it may become violent. I mean, if you've been watching what's happening in Canada, there have already been several pastors in Canada who have been violently, which is to say, forcefully arrested and imprisoned for their unwillingness to obey the civil magistrate's order to close their churches down. And any use of force is, I think, in the category of violence. Okay, And that's what the government does, by the way. George Washington famously said that years ago. Government is force. And that ought to be a warning as to why it's necessary to limit the exercise of that force of government. And once it starts to spill into over those other spheres, church, state, and workplace, look what's happened just within the last few months as an example. Biden gets up and has a press conference and says from his pulpit, I'm going to mandate vaccinations for everybody. And that includes businesses, and if you have a business that has more than 100 employees, You have to force your employees to get vaccinated or they get fired. There's your Hobson's choice. Get the jab or get fired. And what have businesses done in response? Some were already doing this. Some were already starting to say, you have to get this thing. And if you don't get it, you get fired. Those are your two choices. You may have spent the front lines putting your own self at risk over the first year and a half of this pandemic by treating patients who were infected. But now, if you don't get this thing, you're out the door. And look at how businesses, and here's, here's the dirty little secret. There is no order. There's not been an executive order. There has not been an order come from any of the administrative agencies regarding this thing. It has not been mandated. But all all it took was just some bluster from the pulpit in a press conference to get businesses to start lining up and saying, oh yeah, you're going to have to get this, you're going to have to do this thing. And if you don't, you get fired. They're your choices. Yes? Uh, Let me think about that for a second. Is this totalitarianism? Well, that's a, that's a big word. I, I may have difficulty saying that word without stumbling, so let's just call it tyranny. That's easier. This is, this is tyranny. This is an example of where the state is attempting to go over into the sphere of industry and tell owners and leaders of businesses 
what they have to do in relation to their employees, and never mind if it's a violation of individual conscience. And by the way, I'll add this as we wrap up, and I know we're out of time, but this is a soapbox, and I have to stomp on it for just a second. Don't play into their hands by applying for an exception on either medical or religious grounds. Why is that a trap? Hang on. Go ahead. Yeah. And Andrew? Yeah, it's because if you're applying for an exception, it, it implies that the uh, ultimate authority that you get that from is whoever you're applying for. There you go. There's the trap. Your employer does not have the authority to make that decision for you. The only response, if they say you have to do this thing, whatever it is, put pinwheels on your head or get an experimental drug, is you don't have the authority to tell me to do that. That's the exception. Don't write a 20-page explanation of why, you know, these things come from aborted fetal st- uh, stem cell lines. and that's. Don't bother with that. There's a very simple answer. You do not have the authority to do that. Now, they have the authority to fire you if you don't. And I'm... I can't dismiss that. If you look at the the examples of civil disobedience that we most often refer to in Daniel 3 and Daniel 6, when they disobeyed the king, they knew that the consequence for disobeying the king was to be put to death. And they were prepared to accept that, even though God in both cases miraculously delivered them from that. And and use that as a rebuke against the king's unjust laws. Um, but having said that, we, we have to be prepared for the consequences. And it may mean losing your job. It may mean, if you're in healthcare, having your career ruined because now you can't get hired anywhere. But that's not the only option that we have. And if the Lord is faithful to care for his people, then he will care for us and protect us when we're faithful to him, even if it sets us at odds with those authorities. Well, there's a great deal more to say. Uh, Again, let me just quickly run through middle of the second page, some basic principles. All authority is established by Christ. All authority is subordinate to Christ. All authority is accountable to Christ. There's this principle of stewardship, and we could start bringing in some of those stewardship parables to help illustrate that. All authority is judged by Christ. And here's where I would say that there is one law that governs every authority, and that is the law of God. Um, And if you notice under the civil magistrate on page 1, I include a reference to Deuteronomy 17. Go and have a look at that. God says to Moses in the law, This is about 400 years before Saul will become the first king of Israel. God establishes in his law that anyone who becomes a king of Israel has to do what? Write his own copy of the law and do what with it? Put it on the bookshelf? Put it in the the filing cabinet? Read it and meditate it and live by it and rule by it. That is the standard. For any civil magistrate, is the law of God. There is not, there was for a short time, I guess, a few hundred years ago, this idea of what's called the divine right of kings. Have you heard of that? And it's the idea that if God makes me the king, then I can do whatever I want to. And if I want to be a tyrant and an oppressor and cruel and harsh, I can do that. No, you can't. Yes. I'm going to suggest that we could continue that this evening. I actually was thinking the same thing. We'll, we'll resume at 5.30. How about that? Is that okay, Robert? That, that would be fine. Would you like to join us? Uh, we'll do some praying, too, but yeah. we'll give Robert... Uh, yeah. 
And, and if we do that, then we'll have time to look at a few, few of these uh, passages. Okay, thank you. Uh, let's just pray quickly. Thank you, Lord, for the time we've had this morning and the time we've had this weekend to be in your word. We pray that you would bless us in and through that by the power of your spirit to give us discernment, especially in difficult times like what we face now and in the near future. Uh, we thank you for the ministry of this church. I thank you for the opportunity to be here and minister to this congregation this weekend. And I pray as we dismiss our time of Sunday school teaching that uh, we will enter our time of worship with reverence and um, that we would come before you and uh, worship you according to your word and through your word, through the reading and the teaching of it, through the prayers and the praises that we offer to you. And may our sacrifices of praise be pleasing in your sight. In Christ's name we pray. I already smashed my toe on your couch this morning, so I was already suffering from an injury.